0: morning, Grace Gospel Church. Really excited to begin a whole new series with you, the Summer Psalms. The Psalms are so uh, so wonderful. A lot of people, uh, the Psalms is their favorite book of the Bible, and I think that's because it captures really such tremendous raw human experience. Uh, much like real life, the Psalms aren't rainbows and butterflies all the time, and, and it's real, uh, and it, it expresses such such Vast human emotion, it captures the full range of human emotion, while also, in a beautifully balanced way, revealing some very, very deep truths about who God is. And so I think uh, Psalms is is a really uh, special book, and today we're starting this series uh, in the Psalms by looking at Psalm chapter 38, in which David is the author and he shares some of this deep human experience. David expresses a miserable sorrow. The psalm is a despondent and sorrowful plea to God. David in this psalm is utterly overwhelmed by life and all that has been thrown at him. It's hitting him really hard. And, and many things are accumulatively overwhelming the psalmist to the point where he is just at one of the lowest places he could possibly be. He is tossed like a helpless creature by all that is happening to him, bringing him to the place to write this very psalm that again expresses this low point in his life. And who here has not experienced such sorrow? Who has not had great difficulties overcome them? It's, it's common to human experience. Every person in this room has not always been 100% happy all the time. If you have, it's uh, you know, in this fallen world, it's just a little weird, okay? Just a little, little strange. Um, <laughs> who hasn't been helpless at times? Felt like a great wave was pushing them down? And if you haven't, Felt that way you certainly will indeed sorrow is a pervasive and, and and it's guaranteed in human experience in a fallen world and thus we can learn an awful lot from this passage we can learn some things of great importance on what can truly be our comfort during these difficult times so, so now let's read psalm 38 together and see what the lord has for us this morning if you're able please rise for the reading of god's word psalm chapter 38 starting at verse 1 holy scripture says this lord do not rebuke me in your wrath and do not punish me in your burning anger for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me there is no healthy part in my flesh because of your indignation there is no health in my bones because of my sin for my guilty deeds have gone over my head like a heavy burden they weigh too much for me my wounds grow, f- grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go in mourning all day long. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no healthy part in my flesh. I feel faint and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand far away. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they plot deception all day long. But I, like a person who is deaf, do not hear, and I am like a person who cannot speak, who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a person who does not hear and whose mouth there are no arguments. For I wait for you, Lord. You will answer, Lord, my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, who when my foot slips would exalt themselves over me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I admit my guilt. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong. And those who wrongfully hate me are many. And those who repay evil for good, they become my enemies because I follow what is good. Do not abandon me, Lord, my God. Do not be far from me. Hurry to help me, Lord, my salvation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. God, I pray right now that you would... Transform us by the power of your word, that your Holy Spirit, God, who you've placed inside of us, would teach us the, the, the truths from this text and that we would apply them to our lives by your power. Lord, do this miracle, we pray now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the heading, that was, that was intense just to read, might I add. It's, it's a very uh, expressive psalm and the heading of this psalm it reads for a memorial others might translate it uh, for uh, to bring to remembrance some others translate it a petition now both our psalm psalm 38 and psalm 70 both have this same heading and it's clear that both psalms contain a major theme of utter helplessness and need for the lord's deliverance Both psalms end with a cry for help to God. Thus, there's a theme of inability that is captured here, and it's certainly highlighted. This is a call to sing about our own helplessness, a call to consider the day of adversity and deeply remember our utter inability and our weak frame from which we are to cry out to God, to recall our utter inability to fix the situations we find ourselves in and to rely on God alone for his mercy by just throwing ourselves before him and, and hoping for his mercy and salvation. This is why perhaps some translate that heading a petition. For us, such a heading might be a call for us to remember helpless times of sorrow in our own lives when you had cancer, to remember how helpless you felt. Or maybe when friends or family abandoned you. To remember how helpless you were. To remember how helpless you felt when wickedness was done against you. And how, how sorrowful you were. To remember the utter anguish and despondence brought about by guilt from sin. Not to glorify these things. That's not why we remember them. But we remember them ultimately to allow the horror of these real life things and difficulties to push us back to a frame of humility that recognizes our complete dependence on the Lord's mercies and compassions when we feel inability and accompanying sorrow in our life. That's what this psalm emphasizes. That's what it encapsulates. This, this, whole psalm is an expression, a prayer directed to God, crying out to help. Because his life, it's just too much to take. He's unable to take it. Some of us might be in that very moment now. And so there's much to learn here from this psalm about feeling utterly helpless and sorrowful. And I think there's a timeless truth here for all who are overwhelmed. I believe that in this psalm, we see that God is revealed as the only one who in our utter inability and sorrow in this life can be our solace, our comfort. The only person we can cry out to when nothing else is left, when we're unable to, to do anything, we can cry out to him. When all else fails, when you have no ability to change anything in your life, when loved ones abandon you, when you're sitting in the guilt of your own sin, when enemies are about to overcome you, and you can literally do nothing, there is a God who we can cry out to, who we can throw ourselves before in our sorrow and receive comfort. And in our fix-it culture where we like to solve lots of problems, we must embrace the heart of this psalm. We must come to terms with the facts. That we can sometimes do nothing in this life but throw ourselves at the mercies of our Lord. For he is our only comfort. And if there's a takeaway here, this is what I want everyone to remember. Is to let every source of sorrow you experience humble us to cry out to God the only true solace and comfort. To totally just rely on his mercies alone and not what we can do. Because very often we can do nothing. God alone must be that true source of comfort for us. And so broken down the message this morning into uh, two points. First we're going to discuss the sources of sorrow that David is explaining in this psalm. And very many times they sort of relate to sources of sorrow that we ourselves can experience. And then we'll see the sources of solace, which, uh, you know, big surprise here. The one source of solace is the Lord himself, as we will see. So uh, we're going to proceed now by looking at the sources of the sorrow. The sources of the sorrow. First, we need to recognize that sin always brings sorrowful consequences of discipline. Notice what is going on at the beginning of this psalm. In verse 2 in particular, it's, it's the... the sorrow of discipline that david is feeling in this psalm interestingly the first inescapable trouble the thing he has no control over that's making him feel so much sorrow in his heart the thing he cannot control which he has no ability to 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 really change that's bringing him down into the depths is the discipline from god of david's own sin Verse 2, for your arrows, he's talking to the Lord, your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. In some way, David had sinned. Now, Now, the occasion is not explicitly stated we know David did have certain sins uh, with Bathsheba for example and other I'm I'm sure sure there were other sins in his life it doesn't explicitly say but what is clear in this text is that there is an acknowledgement of guilt and sin all over this sorrowful psalm and isn't that an interesting correlation sin brings sorrow it seems obvious right of course it does. In verse verse 3, verse 4, verse 18, all speak of sin, guilt, and foolishness. That the psalmist is, is saying he was acting in. He was acting sinful. He talks about his own guilt. It's all there in the psalm. And so now, interestingly enough, a source of the sorrow is God's weighty discipline. Here it says that God's arrows are sinking deep into him. The hand of God is pressed down on him. And friend, it is one thing to experience discipline from some sort of human source, but it's entirely something deeper to experience the weight of God's discipline. When God is pressing down on you, you know, God's got a lot of uh, arm muscle, it hurts. When he's shooting arrows at you, his accuracy is perfect. It's going to be agonizing. God's discipline of sin in the psalm seems to take a few shapes. We see that sorrow comes from mental anguish sin can bring. Look at some of these verses. Verse 4, for my guilty deeds have gone over my head. They're big Right, they're tall, they're above him. It says, like a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. He has a mental anguish that has come about because of his own sin. Verse 6, I go on mourning all day long. Verse 8, I feel faint and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Often uh, an expression of, of the inner man is the, the heart. Might be something physical, but a hard usually is expression of the inner man. He's having such mental turmoil in his inner person. Verse 18, Tow- even towards the end. For I admit my guilt. And what does he say? I am full of anxiety. Why? Because of my sin. The effects of sin weigh heavy. It's too much for him to bear. Verse 4. It's heavy. A weight he cannot carry. Full of anxiety and anguish, he's lacking the glorious benefits and blessings that come from from obedience and suffering consequences that come from his sin. And some uh, actually have called this psalm uh, part of the penitential psalms. Meaning, not only does this uh, this psalm represent sorrow, but it represents particularly sorrow for sin. Sin has wreaked havoc in David's life. And friends, see now the horror of sin in our own lives. See the mental anguish caused by it. See sin for this this foolish evil that it is and the, the, the silly, awful consequences it brings about. It only brings about decay. It only brings about anxiety and guilt. Those sins which Satan promised will fulfill you are actually going to destroy you. It will not bring you happiness. Sin always results in deep sorrow. Sorrow too heavy for you and I to even bear. It is a horror. Do not be fooled. Sin has consequences. Some might say, oh, David's being overly emotional in this psalm. But quite honestly, the discipline of the Lord brought him to a spot where he recognized The horror of his sin. Too much for him to bear. A heavy load. Because of sin. It's always going to be. A source of sorrow. That debilitates us. As we regret. Our actions. Our foolish actions. And God may have to discipline. His children to show us. The truth of the ugliness. Of sin. There is no. Human flourishing. There is no. Good in sin, there's nothing good apart from God's rule. And when we go up against that, all that is left is guilt and sorrow and condemnation. There is a burning up of rubbish and an internal revealing of our sinful character that that even the saints experience in this life, even after salvation as the Lord is sanctifying us, Now, if you are a saint, there's some good news, right? We know that Christ bore that load that was too heavy for us to bear. He bore that on our behalf. And that this sorrow for the saint that's being experienced is a sorrow of fatherly discipline and not eternal wrath. Remember, uh, the psalmist cries out, do not punish me in your wrath or your burning anger. God can say, all right, I won't, because Christ was punished in his wrath. But for those who reject Christ, there will be sorrow forever. Friends, even if there's a temporary pleasure in this life from sin, eventually all sin will be judged, and in every sin ever committed will be seen and revealed for what it is, and it will be a terrifying and sorrowful revelation. And the one who rejects Christ, it is an eternal sorrow, an eternal anguish for all all eternity. A guilt that can never be overcome. The hand of God always pressing down on you. The arrows of punishment in his wrath firing at you. Constant torment because of the wickedness of our sinful deeds. It always leads to sorrow, and it's it's universally true for the sinner and for the saint who who believes in Christ. Again, thankfully, for those who believe, it is his fatherly discipline and not eternal judgment, for Christ has paid the price. It's not a punishment and wrath, but a fatherly hand, and that can be extended to you. And what a solace is that? I'm jumping the gun here. Solace is later, but what a solace, what a comfort. Now, another source of sorrow caused by sin, and and not at all unrelated to the mental stuff, by the way, is this idea of a physical ailment. It says in verse 3, there's no healthy part in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. He is saying he is not well physically, and that sin is, is what brought this about. The psalmist appears to be describing some sort of physical condition. Now, maybe this is uh, metaphorical. We're dealing with poetry, after all. However, even if it is, this only bolsters the horrors of the mental anguish. Which really doesn't do much better, does it? However, there likely is a real physical condition that was being described here. I mean, this, this psalm is talking of speech, speech of flesh and bones in the body. And health, it seems to go beyond even the mental here. Now, there's some kind of uh, debate about what the actual diagnosis is. Some say it might be some kind of kidney disease, right? It talks about burning in his sides or his loins. Others say it might have been some kind of leprosy type of thing because there's speak of decay and abandonment. People are leaving him. Uh, it could have even been both and. Who knows? The two aren't mutually exclusive. You can have a double diagnosis. Uh, so strictly speaking, um, we don't really know what, it, what, what the ailment is. Scripture doesn't specifically say. But in any case, it is clear that whatever this physical ailment was, was a great source of excruciating pain and compounded his helplessness and the sorrow that he was experiencing, Moreover, the point remains, and this is interesting, David sees it as a source uh, coming from his own sinful folly. Verse 3, it is clearly attributed to him because of his sin. Likewise, verse 5, he says, my wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. There's a a physical rotting taking place in the the language here, taking place in his body. He's tormented by his his own stench, and his body is rotting away. There's there's pus, and there's pain all over. And look again what he attributes the cause to. He says, because of my foolishness. He continues to describe the physical ailment in verse 6. He says, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go in mourning all day long. You ever been in so much pain where you needed to like move in like fetal position and just bend down because there's so much pain, maybe in a certain area of your body. That's kind of what's being experienced here. He's, there's excruciating pain and he's trying to alleviate it. Verse six could tentatively be alluding to that. He cannot carry himself with strength. And he's bowing down because he's so weak. Mourning because of his excruciating pain. He goes on and he describes that his sides are filled with burning. And he says, and there is no healthy part in my flesh. He he makes even that claim. Nothing about me is is healthy right now. It's described as, as a burning pain. Utterly diseased and helpless. A wretched, weak human who is in agonizing pain. Maybe a modern parallel might be someone who is, again, dealing with leprosy and cancer. And it's stage four. And and it's just eating away all throughout their body. It's already spread everywhere. This is... The kind of language that, that David is using it, it, that, that might be a parallel for us to maybe understand what he's going through could have been much worse. Verse 10 highlights a bitter loss of life itself in his language. He says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. The light of my eyes, even that is gone from me. This is an utter hopelessness. And this is depressive language that alludes to death's door being around the corner. Weakness increases and his strength fails. The very light of his eyes turn to darkness. And again, most interestingly, as we stated earlier, several verses seem to indicate that much of this anguish was caused by his own sin. Now, I want to be clear. We know that just because someone has health issues does not mean it is always from personal sin, right? The world is fallen and cursed. Our bodies are cursed. And to say that uh, it is always because of someone's blatant personal sin is just naive, right? For example, in John 9, Jesus asked, uh, was asked regarding the blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, Right? Or or Job, think of Job, who had boils all over him and was experiencing a physical uh, ailment. The Lord, in the end, rebuked Job's friends, who estimated that it was because there was some sort of personal sin involved. So what are we to make of this description in Psalm 38? Well, Just because every sickness can't be reduced to personal sin does not mean that it can never be reduced to personal sin. In fact, we know that there are physical effects for sin. For example, think about 1 Corinthians 11 regarding the Lord's Supper. Paul says there were sick among you, some even died, because of their unworthy actions during the Lord's Supper. Right, we see people, Ananias and Sapphira, struck dead because of sin. Indeed, there can be real physical consequences associated with sin, and to deny that is also unnuanced and naive. Moreover, practically, we—this is just easy to see, right? One who gets uh, an STD from committing adultery must confront the ugly truth about their sin and its awful effects on physical reality. So, friends, consider the weight and the anguish of sin, both mental and physical, that it, can, that it can just bear on us. It's an awful thing with terrible consequences, even on the physical body. Now, I don't say this to pronounce some sort of judgment or claim to know where every physical ailment comes from. I think that's uh, silly, silly for people to make such judgments. We see that even with Job's friends, right? I'm not omniscient. I don't know. But I can encourage each and every one of us to consider the weight of these things personally, to wrestle with our guilt, to cry out to the Lord. Maybe the Lord is trying to teach us something about sin by allowing some horrible manifestation in our life so we and our pride can be knocked down and see evil for what it is don't miss you know the opportunity because of denial over this point wrestle with it personally after all uh, in our psalm undeniably david attributes his physical ailments his mental ailments all with sin and, and in fact bolsters his appropriate view of sin as evil and it enabled him it's the very thing that enabled him to cry out to God for comfort so we shouldn't miss opportunities because things are tough so so pray about it so pray about it next we see that sorrow can come from abandonment Verse eleven: My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand far off. Those who are close to David, his loved ones, his kinsmen—they're not even by his side in this difficult season. He is abandoned by them. Again, this is in all in conjunction with his festering wounds. He's ill, and certainly. David feels ostracized. He might not have had leprosy, but he's certainly ostracized like he did. Some of us deeply know this feeling of being alone, being abandoned, physically or emotionally abandoned by a parent, or maybe growing in our old age. Our children abandon us now that our body is deteriorating and we're growing lonely and weak. Here, Loved ones and friends, they fail David. David got sick, they all left. Even relatives, it says, are standing far away from him. No one understands him. No one helps David. No one is close to David. And and they're physically distancing themselves. Friends, here's a truth for us. Might be another tough one to swallow. People will let us down. If I took a poll right now, who has experienced pain, even from a loved one, I bet every hand would go up. Abandonment from people will be a source of sorrow that we will encounter in this life. And it's especially going to sting if we idolize people. I mean, for David, he he had, think about his past, he had mighty men, right? He had armies following him. Close kinsmen and family. And now, alone, what is left for him? Loneliness, a real form of sorrow to contend with. Abandonment, a source of sorrow. Now we see sorrow also comes from enemies. Here's another complaint on the mouth of David about what's going on inside of him. He says, those who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. And they plot deception all day long. As if things are not bad enough, he's threatened and plotted against and is likely, in in his mind, based off of all the evidence, to be overtaken by his enemies, seeking to injure him. He's already ill. And they're coming essentially to bully him, to take his kingdom. They're, They're threatening destruction. I mean, imagine for a moment You are in this position that you're ill, you have no one, and now someone much stronger than you comes and essentially threatens to hurt you and to rob you. This was David's reality. And this is, by the way, the reality of so many across the world. Think of those who are being persecuted in foreign countries, for example. There are governments and people constantly plotting against our brothers and sisters, seeking to injure them seeking to destroy them. And indeed, this too can be a real source of sorrow, the plotting of enemies. And here's something even more interesting. We see that David cannot even defend himself. He goes on right after speaking in verse 13. He says, but I, like a person who is deaf, do not hear. And I am like a person who cannot speak, who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a person who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. He's, he's confused. He's numb. He's ultimately silent as he contemplates the horrors of his enemies. We've all heard of like fight or flight, right? It's kind of like a response to some sort of danger. Picture a grizzly bear about to eat you alive. But now add illness to the picture. You're both too weak to fight and you're too weak to even escape. You're too weak weak to flee. Now add abandonment to that picture. No humans coming to your aid. Add guilt of sin to that picture. You might feel you even deserve it. And what we have really is a a pathetic David entirely frozen in fear who cannot respond in any way to what is happening. Physically ill, attacked by enemies, abandoned. There is no argument in his mouth. Verse 17, it says he's ready to fall. He is totally despondent, frozen, and paralyzed by fear. Totally inept, cannot hear, cannot defend himself, and, and this is where he finds himself. And his enemies grow stronger, according to verse 19. It says they wrongfully hate him. And he can't defend himself. He can't open his mouth because everything is just too much for him. He can't change anything. And by human standards, there is no hope. David can do absolutely Nothing. And so amidst all of these sources of sorrow caused by all of these circumstances, where is hope? What can David possibly do? What comfort is captured uh, even in the very writing of this psalm? It is the comfort of God who is the ultimate source of all, sol- uh, of all solace. So let's look at those sources of solace We see that solace can come from crying out to God for mercy. That issue with sin that we talked about that was causing him sorrow. Look at what he does in the psalm. right? Clearly he's suffering consequences, but look at what he does. He can't do anything else. So here's how he responds to, to the unavoidable arrow of the Lord's discipline. He says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath and do not punish me in your burning anger. David, throughout all the psalm, remember, admits he has sinned and and he's brought these circumstances upon himself and it leads him to a place, finally, all of the sorrow where he just cries out to God. He can't escape the situation, but he also can't take it anymore. Is anyone there? Here's an option for you. Cry out to God. Do that this morning. If that guilt of sin is weighing on you, Look to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy. It's the only thing we can do. We can do nothing to escape God's discipline and punishment. We can do nothing to escape the sorrows. We have to cry out to Him as our only source. I mean, remember, verse 2 is indicating God is the one firing some of these arrows, and and no human can outrun God. God's accuracy with a bow, remember, it's it's just perfect. (laughs) He hits the mark every time, and so David can do nothing. He can't run from God and his discipline anymore, and so he says, Lord, have mercy on me. Functionally throughout the psalm, David's saying, Lord, I see the horror of my sin. Please ease your discipline. And we often like to run away. We don't do this. And the the irony is it's our only comfort, We often run away from God when we're being disciplined, thinking we can outrun his rod. Anyone ever try to outrun their parents when they were being disciplined? It doesn't work, right? You got it twice as hard, didn't you? Now, add the fact that it is God disciplining, and we are foolish enough to think we can outrun him and we can ignore the situation, hide our guilt, try to cover our shame. He's not fooled by that. And he will continue. Again, that perfect aim. The truth is we can't outrun God. Sometimes, arrow after arrow, as it's sinking into us, the only solace we have left is pleading with him. Stopping, turning around, repenting, admitting guilt like David does all throughout this psalm. Acknowledging our guilt and asking for mercy. And instead of trying to dodge his discipline and pretend we're right be like David in our psalm and face our our father and say, Lord, I am guilty, but please do not rebuke me in your wrath. Don't punish me in your burning anger. I, I can't take it anymore. You win. I'm the guilty sinner and you are the perfect Lord. Oh, when we do this, there is such solace and comfort for us when we stop fighting God and acknowledge our sin instead and cry out for his mercies. There is such comfort in in, in that thing. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, there's just such solace in saying, God, I recognize my stupidity, the folly of my sin, have mercy. When there's nothing you can do to escape God's discipline, sometimes our solace is actually crying out to the very one shooting the arrows at us. And true repentance demands such a thing. It's a hard truth. It can be kind of confusing, actually. Um, but I pray we recognize the significance of it, that we wouldn't be resistant, and that we would stop running away and instead plea for the, Lord, uh, the Lord's mercy over us. It's our comfort. You know, once our pride uh, is, is broken, he often removes those arrows he was shooting into us and binds our wounds He strikes us to kill our pride and binds us back up with great love and mercy. Friends, here's a major takeaway for this point. Don't let the discipline of sin in your life drive you away from God. Let it drive you to him. He is the only source of comfort. David's pleading with God, not trying to justify himself. There is none of that here. But pleading for mercy, recognizing the horror of sin, looking around at the effects, and he just is defeated, and he says, Lord, have mercy. All of this was going on inside of him. He's petitioning God to have mercy on him amidst all the consequences he's enduring, repenting, admitting guilt, and asking for mercy. It's the only source of comfort for those who are sinning. It's repenting and going to God. Now, another source of comfort we see here is this: the fact that God understands deeply David and, and who he is completely. Look at verse nine. Uh, amidst describing his sorrow and his guilt in the psalm, his physical condition, the psalmist addresses the Lord again in verse nine. So he addresses the Lord at the beginning and describes some things. And then in verse nine, he addresses the Lord again. So that's that's a tip off. Hey, this is a major point. <laughs> And here's what he says. He says, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. He knows us deeper than we even know ourselves. I think uh, all of Psalm 139 captures this point. Well, I was tempted to preach on that one. It's a good one. You know, you've searched me. You've known me. Where can I go from your spirit? He knows everything about us. Scripture says here, all our desires, all we are, is before him and open to him. He knows our wants and our longings and our motivations. And and notice this, it says the extent of it, right? It says all of them. All of the desires you have ever had, all of the feelings you have ever felt, they are known. The good ones, the bad ones, the lustful thoughts, the guilty pleasures, every feeling of genuine remorse, absolutely everything about David was fully known by God. And in the midst of confusion and sorrow that David felt, there was solace knowing he was known. Solace for him in understanding that God knows everything about me and about this situation and trusting in that. A solace in crying out, you know me, Lord. Friends, likewise, there is solace for us, there is comfort for us, knowing that we are fully known, that our desires are are opened before him, they lay, lay before him and he stares into the depths of all of our longings. Indeed, again, this is another thing that's a scary thought. Notice that this kind of scary thoughts, God, you know, I'm going to face God's discipline. I'm going to say that God knows everything about me. Those are the sources of comfort. Be careful. Don't be fooled. He says, the Lord knows, knows him, knows all of his desires, and it's a source of solace. Not only our desires, it says he also knows the sighing. Isn't that Interesting. That our sighing, our groaning, what's going on in our hearts for real can't be hidden from God. That is, we can't pretend to be robotic, perfect beings and fool God. Good luck. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows the groanings, the mindsets we have, the frustrations at our circumstances, and none of it can be hidden. So stop trying to process these emotions by yourself. Go go to God with them. The sighing is not something he can't can't handle, nor is it something he's unaware of. You're naked before him. Don't cover your shame. That's a tactic of Genesis 3. He sees through it. Now, I'm not saying that sighing and groaning is itself a right thing to do. To a right mindset to have. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not trying to encourage us pointing the finger at God and getting confrontational with God. But I am saying this. You cannot overcome the things that frustrate you without God. Good luck. Good luck trying to clean yourself up by yourself. It will be a disaster. He is not impressed with your efforts as you try to hide what's really going on Instead, we need a healthy way to sigh before him, just as the psalmist did in this very writing. Might I suggest as well, uh, us who are prone to be a little more intellectual, and we think that that's equivalent to maturity, that sometimes we're very emotionally immature. Pretending to be emotionless is not Christian maturity. When the reality is our sighing uh, is in our hearts, and if that's left undealt with, that's not good. And it's, in fact, indicative of hiding from the Lord. Now, again, I'm not advocating inappropriate complaining, judging God. (laughs) That's also a disaster. All right? Pointing the finger at him. Don't do that. God is perfectly just and perfectly right. What I am saying is truly mature people, truly mature Christians with their emotions, understand they can't hide from him. And so you go to him again with mercy and asking for mercy for your own foolish sighing. Friends, would you follow suit with the psalmist actions? Would you express your guilt open before the Lord and, and just cry out to him? Would you have that special moment where you understand you're fully known and, and your tears can finally be translated in, in, in something that God can only understand? Everything was, was bringing him to, all the sorrow was bringing him to a place of intimacy with the Lord. And it can do the same for you. Whatever you're going through today, even if you can't put words into it, you're fully known. He knows. Take comfort. And that's available to anybody in this room. If you think, no one Understands. He does. He does. Next, we see that solace uh, can come by by longing and asking for the nearness of God. This is uh, sort of what's done in 21. But recall, again, the loved ones abandoned him earlier, didn't they? However, he has a hope. He has a comfort. He prays to God, and he writes in verse 21, Do not abandon me, Lord. My God, do not be far from me. He longs for that which can bring him comfort, that is the nearness of God. He cries out, do not be far from me. Those who are lonely and abandoned, let let your deep loneliness and sorrow cause you to call out to the Lord again for intimacy, for closeness. Call out to him when sorrow comes in the form of loneliness. What do you do? Do you sit there and wallow? Or do you or do you pray to the Lord? I need you. I need, I need you to not abandon me too, Lord. And, and and talk yourself back back into what is true, that he will never abandon you. All of the abandonment, all of the trial. It led Davis, David to this place where he just recognized the, the perfections and that the, the Lord is all he needed. It's all he wanted. He said, everything else is is gone, Lord, but you don't abandon me too. He just recognizes the value of of his, his relationship with the Lord. It was all he had left. It was all he needed. And now we see in a cry, it reveals that it's all he wanted as well. And friends, it should be all that we want. Brothers and sisters, pray when you're lonely. Pray unto the Lord. Express that longing to be near. It's a source of comfort for the weary soul. And by the way, he will not abandon us. For for the New Testament saint, especially the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. His spirit cannot depart. It's been so graciously and abundantly poured out to the saint because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Long for the nearness of God. Long for the word. Long for fellowship with God. It's available to us. David, in deep sorrow, wanted nothing else but to to be near to the Lord, to have the Lord come through for him when he could do nothing else. And what's the final and ultimate form of solace, the final hope, the comfort? We see that solace can come by waiting on God to answer and save. For I wait for you, Lord. You will answer me, Lord my God. When David can do nothing else, he waits Right before, remember verse 14, he just spoke of how he cannot even speak. He cannot, there's no argument in his mouth. He's a sitting duck and can do nothing. And his solace is to throw himself before God and say, God, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait on you. Wait for God to be his mouthpiece when he cannot speak. Wait for God to judge the enemies who are rising up against him. Wait for God to be his ultimate salvation. And in verse 15, for the first time in the psalm, David really expresses confidence in not, what, not his own work, but the work of the Lord. Here we see David using possessive pronouns, right? My God. He is perhaps remembering covenantal relationship, the promises made to him about his throne. There is hope, there is solace and comfort in waiting on God and his promises God is his God and he will wait for, for the answer. He will wait for his salvation and there is nothing else he can do. Friends, the, no argument in his mouth. He's ill, plotted against, abandoned by loved ones. But all of this in the end, he says, I choose to wait on God. He alone is my salvation. He will defend me. And then look at how definitive this is. This isn't like, God, please help. It's like certain, you will answer. Faith is being built up in who God is and the promises he's made. The main thing to combat that sorrow is hope, hope in the Lord, faith that he will come through with all he said, even when every single thing tells us otherwise. Do we have that kind of faith in the scripture? I pray we do that when we open our Bibles, we realize it's more than a storybook, but it's a book of Definite promises that we can trust in when we have times of sorrow. And when things don't look good, we can say, oh, I I read and I know God will answer. And that can be our hope because we can't control much. We can't control anything. We just must have faith and hope. And what a gospel picture, by the way. Nothing you can do to stop the despair of life. Moreover, nothing you can certainly do to stop the horror of God's uh, judgment, sitting ducks frozen, no argument in our mouth. But we have a God who according to verse 15 will answer. David ends the psalm not with a story of how he got himself out of the mess. He doesn't even really describe the victory. I think that's intentional because he's trying to emphasize the crying out to the Lord. So he doesn't describe the victory, but we know what happened. Because David didn't die that way. Nonetheless, we see the emphasis being on God as Savior. It ends with a plea to God. And the psalmist's only solace amidst all of this sorrow. The only comfort was a cry to the Lord for, for him to be the Savior. Verse 22, hurry to help me, Lord, my salvation Friends, likewise, there's nothing we can do but cry out to help for the Lord. Like David, we are guilty and and worthy of the light leaving our eyes, worthy to bear the guilt over our heads that is too much to bear, worthy of death that's the wages of sin. But like David, we have a Savior. There is one who bore the heavy burden from verse 4, that was too much for us. A perfect, sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, who was not worthy of that judgment, took our place. He took our burden. He suffered physically. His body was physically bruised because of sin. He, he was emotionally in despair. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? He he bore the weight of sin, experiencing unimaginable physical and emotional agony to bring about salvation for all who would believe in him as the Savior. The Father shot arrows, not of, of, of discipline, but deadly arrows of wrath. And the, the father had burning anger towards this, towards The Son, as he he bore the sins that, that, that we committed, the Father's hand pressed down, and not only pressed down on the Son, crushed him for our iniquity, that we might be saved. And while we are never abandoned by God, Jesus, on the cross, he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He felt that. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus was silent before his accusers as well. He understands all of the horror and sorrows of human experience far worse than we ever could. So that we could be saved. So that he could show us mercy the greatest sorrow in is the salvation of God. Or the greatest solace to sorrow is the salvation of God, which we can do nothing to earn, which we do not deserve, and all we can do is look to him and wait for him to save. That's our solace. That's our comfort in this excruciating life. It's that we are saved by a God. Who is perfect and who loves us. Not in what we can do, our mouths are shut, we're ill, can't do anything, but in what God has done by sending his son into the world for our salvation. Let's pray. And by the way, when we're done with the prayer, we're going to do a baptism, so please stick around for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son. To bear the weight of our sin. God we thank you. That you were pleased. To crush him. Oh Lord. And that now he was slain. To receive all power. Glory and wealth. Dominion. It's all his Lord. Because he rose again. We thank you. That we now can spend eternity with our Savior. And not bearing the weight of sin. And guilt and punishment. Because Christ has done it for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for that salvation. Lord, let it be our comfort. God, be our comfort this week. When difficult things arise, let us remember this message and cry out to you, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, do this uh, miracle in the lives of all of us, for we can do nothing without you. Oh, Father, once again, we thank you for, for your word. And we pray that you would bless us now in Christ's holy name.